series um, on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And uh, we've entitled this, A Love Affair with Problems. And the reason for that is that, um, uh, as we've looked a number of weeks now, Corinth, that uh, ancient Greek church 2,000 years ago, certainly had a love affair with problems. There were all sorts of things going wrong in that church. There were moral problems and doctrinal problems and uh, relationship problems. And we're going to focus uh, our thoughts today on, on 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But let's pray first. Heavenly Father, may your word be our rule, your spirit be our teacher, and your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Good news. The perfect pastor has been found. <laughs> Thank you for that vote of confidence, Martin. He preaches exactly 20 minutes and then sits down. Not a chance. He condemns sin but never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 6 in the morning to 10 at night doing everything from preaching sermons to balancing the accounts to sweeping the yard. He looks like George Clooney. <laughs> sings like Chris Tomlin. And preaches like Billy Graham. He makes £60 a week and he's always smartly dressed and willing to con contribute to other church causes and missions and gives £30 away to the church. <coughs> he's 36 years old. He's been preaching for 40 years. <laughs> he has a burning desire to work with the youth and yet spends all of his time with senior citizens. He makes 15 home calls a day on church members, is constantly evangelizing non-members and is always available in his study if required. Unfortunately, he burned himself out and died at the age of 32. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what some people expect from a pastor. And the church at Corinth had some absolutely amazing pastors. They had Paul and they had Apollos and they had Priscilla and Aquila. But instead of being thankful to God for the spirit, spiritual benefit that they received from all of them, they started promoting one pastor above the other pastors. And there were some within the church who were saying, we follow Paul. And others saying, we follow Cephas, Peter. And others, we follow Apollos. <clears throat> and sadly, there's always a negative effect when you promote one person above the other. Because what you're actually also doing is demoting or devaluing other people's godly contribution. And Paul has some very strong words to say to this church. And as you probably guessed by now, the first three and a half of the first four chapters are taken up with addressing this problem in Corinth by these uh, divisions caused by competing groups. So we're going to look and we're going to work our way through the whole chapter today. I do encourage you, bring your Bibles on a Sunday morning, please. And, you know, bring a notepad as well. Because uh, there are things that you will think, oh my word, that was, that was rather good. Yeah, probably when Dan's speaking, not when I'm speaking. And then, you may just want to jot that down because I can guarantee by the time that we've uh, concluded, you would have let that thought escape you. So let's have a look at this uh, passage uh, today. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. <coughs>
Verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world, or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove that you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? When one of you says, I am a follower of Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, aren't you just acting like people of the world? After all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We are only God's servants to whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. As you note there from the reading, he starts off by calling them brothers and sisters. And that's what they were. They were fellow believers, start of the, part of the same church, part of God's family. But they were far from being a good example of what the Christian life is all about. And Paul says that when he spoke to them, he couldn't treat them as mature believers. He treated them as almost as if they were part of the non-Christian world. He treats them as infants. And maybe that was understandable when, they, when he first went to Corinth. Because when he first went there, he was the first to preach the gospel in Corinth. And they were in those days all spiritual babies. They were all new to the Christian faith. Many of them came from Jewish or Greek backgrounds, some from religious, some from irreligious, some from moral and immoral backgrounds. There was a whole wide range of people within this church. And in the earlier days, of course, they were babes in Christ, they were infants. And Paul fed them on milk, on spiritual milk, because he couldn't feed them um, on, with, with solid foods, because they weren't ready for it. That wasn't their fault. Because you can only give a baby milk. And they were babes. You don't admonish or scold a baby for not enjoying a T-bone steak. Because babies, it's natural. You give them milk. But roll on four years. And then Paul writes to them, 1 Corinthians. Four years later. And then he says to them, as you can see before you. And you, are st and you still aren't ready. You still aren't ready for solids. You see, instead of being controlled by the Holy Spirit, they were controlled by their own sinful spirit. <clears throat> For those of you who have had teenagers or presently have teenagers in the home, I'm sure at some time or other, your kids would have said to you, when are you going to treat me like an adult? Yeah? And for those teenagers who are amongst us today, I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard from your parents... The answer to that question, that goes something like, yes, when am I going to treat you like an adult? When you... <laughs> yeah, okay, we've all been there. <laughs> I think it's part and parcel of the relationships with parents and their teenagers growing up. Yeah. You see, that's exactly what Paul is saying here to the Corinthian believers. He's saying, when are you going to act like adults? You should have developed by now. You should have moved on from this spiritual milk. And I think the word uh, infants there is appropriate for two reasons. That uh, when he refers to them as infants. 
Firstly, if you put toddlers uh, in a room together, they play very nicely for about two minutes, if you're lucky. And that is without adult supervision. And then it doesn't take too long, does it, really, before they start squabbling and fighting. A few years back, Julie and I visited some really close friends of ours, and we were staying there for a few days. And the couple had taken on uh, foster uh, caring. And um, the girls that they had with them had been from a very troublesome background. And the girls were sisters, and they were aged six and four. And Julie and I were with our friend Sue in the kitchen, and the girls were in the lounge. And our friend Sue started counting. One, two, three. And Julie said, what what, what are you doing? What are you you counting for? She said, it's the 30-second rule. And I said, the 30-second rule? What's that? And she said... The girls in the other room, they can't remain unsupervised for more than 30 seconds without fighting. And she carried on counting. Got the 25, I think, on that occasion. And he said, we we all know, you know, that siblings have their fights and quarrels when growing up. And if it's not the 30-second rule, it may be the five-minute rule or the ten-minute rule when mum or dad needs to come in and defuse the situation or step in as a referee. I had it first, that's mine, give it back. Which often precedes the kicking, the hair pulling and the biting. Or in the case of my sister, who was three years younger than me when we were growing up, she's still three years younger than me. (laughs) I realised what I said. In her case, it was the liberal use of a cricket bat. Maybe that's why I am as I am, I've just been hit too many times on the head. I do hope she's listening to this podcast (laughs) and feeling guilty. And children are often like that. You know, grown-ups don't usually fight with fists and cricket bats. They fight with their tongues. I've been told that it's uh, more dignified to do that. And the Corinthians were fighting verbally over which leader was the best leader. And the second reason why infants, I think, is a particularly good way of explaining uh, what these Corinthian Christians were like is because uh, children, kids, hero worship. And sometimes they have their superheroes. A photograph there of Amelie, who's five, and Elijah, who's three, in their Spider-Man and woman outfits. So it's quite uh, funny, really. Uh, because Elijah, you know, anybody, any children of Dan would also obviously be comic book fanatics. And uh, Elijah will come into the room sometimes when he's dressed up and sometimes not. And he will curl his middle fingers like that and he'll point them in my direction. and say, I'm going to web you, granddad. <laughs> and then, you know, I just pretend to be incapacitated and remain perfectly still with an icy stare for the next couple of minutes until he comes back in the room to unweb me. And it's good fun, honest. You know, it sounds a bit weird, but, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a granddad thing, all right? You know, I'm sure that some of you know. But kids love heroes and kids love superheroes. And often that kids' superhero is their parents. Here in the schoolyard, my dad is bigger than you, a dad. My dad can fight you, a dad. My dad makes more money than you, a dad. My dad, whatever it is, yeah? I don't know if you heard that story of three lads arguing who had the best dad. The doctor's son claimed that his dad was best because he made him better for nothing. 
And the teacher's uh, lad said, no, my dad's the best because my dad makes me clever for nothing. And the pastor's son said, no, my dad wins here. He makes me good for nothing. (laughs) (coughs) And whether that story is true or not, it highlights what children are like. And what uh, what, what spiritual children are like too. You see, these immature Christians... (coughs) felt that they needed to promote some leaders and demote others. And Paul calls them worldly Christians, infants in Christ, controlled by their sinful nature. I find it incredibly sad when I meet Christians who have been on the journey since trusting Christ, maybe four years, maybe ten years, maybe fifteen, maybe forty years, and they are still in that state when they were young Christians. They've not progressed, they've not developed in their Christian faith at all. They might be good church people, might be regular in attendance, they may know their Bible stories, they might even pray like an angel, but they still live their lives according to worldly wisdom, not according to godly wisdom. You see, these Christians in Corinth, they exercise probably more spiritual gifts in their church than in any other New Testament church. But they remained immature. They had the gifts of the Spirit, but they didn't have the fruit of the Spirit. They had tongues, but they lacked in love. They possessed wisdom, but they didn't have kingdom wisdom. They had the wisdom of this world. Moving on. Paul doesn't seem to mind changing metaphors here and uh, he moves on to the next illustration in this chapter. Verse 5. <coughs> After all, who is Apollos, who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it but it was God who made it grow. It is not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose. And both will be rewarded for their own hard work. For we are both God's workers and you are God's field, you are God's building. Paul was their pioneer pastor. There was no church in Corinth before he arrived. He came from Athens, as we looked at last week, and he came to Corinth, and then he stayed there for 18 months, teaching them the basics of the Christian life. He moved on to Ephesus, and um, then it was Apollos. So Paul was the one who planted the seed. But then Apollos came, and he watered that seed by his prayers, by his teaching, by his godly wisdom, by his wise counsel. And then what Paul says next is so important. He says that neither Paul nor Apollos could make anything grow. Only God could do that. You see, it doesn't matter to a plant who originally planted the seed or who waters it. As long as it gets water, ask any plant. Similarly, it doesn't matter really whose ministry we were saved under. 
or who, who, who baptized us or who taught us. Of course, we'll have special affection for some people because of the part that they have played in our spiritual journey. Of course, that is. But you see, we're only servants doing the Master's work. And the three lessons here that uh, Paul gives us in these verses uh, from 5 to 9, let me just put them up on screen for you. The first lesson is that people's ministry is diverse. In other words, we've all got different, different gifts and different abilities. And later on in this letter, and we'll find out in, in about three months' time, perhaps when we get to chapter 12, that we are different parts of Christ's body. You know, the foot cannot say to the hand just that it's not part of the body because it's a foot. Both are needed in the physical body. And similarly, different gifts and differing ministries are required within the body of Christ. The second thing that um, uh, Paul shows here is that there is unity of purpose within that. That even though people have different gifts and different ministries, the purpose is the same. Now, Paul and Apollos are two very different contrasting styles. But their ministry and their purpose was to exalt Christ by extending God's kingdom on earth. <clears throat> and their aim was to see people turn to Jesus. And also there's need for humility. You know, I feel it's wonderful that God has ordained Paul... Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila, Peter, all of us to be his hands and feet to do his work and to be his ministers on earth. There's an old poem which is attributed to um, 14th century Christian Saint Teresa of Avila. And uh, it says this, that God has no hands but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead others in his way. God has no voice but our voice to tell them how he died. And God has no help but our help to lead them to his side. That's true. That God has chosen human beings like us to do his work. But, without God, none of the efforts that we put in will ever achieve anything. And that's Paul's point. Yes, we are called. Yes, we are called to be hands and feet. Yes, we are called to minister to others. Yes, we are called to sow seeds and water them. But it's God who is the one who gives the increase. It is God who is the Lord of the harvest. So what Paul is doing here, he changes his metaphor. He moves from spiritual infants onto crops and fields. And now, the next metaphor, he goes on to buildings and foundations. <coughs> Verse 9. For we are both God's workers and you are God's field. You are God's building. Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have. Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, straw. But on judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. 
the fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Some of you I know are quite new to this uh, church family. So you won't know that uh, about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, we had a massive extension here. We wanted to double the size, the seating capacity of this auditorium. And um, the first thing that we did, we called in a structural engineer because we needed to knock out uh, load-supporting walls and uh, have steels in the roof space that were going to reach to the very back. Some major work going on there. And um, with the annex, we put a new annex uh, at the back there and a nursery at the side. And foundations needed to be put in. In fact, I remember when the annex was going at the back there. Uh, and I, from my, my office in the manor house, I've got a bird's eye view of all that was happening. It was quite wonderful. Uh, they came across a problem that they actually found a well under, under, underneath. So they needed to put in extra firm foundations. You see, if Les and his crew had just come in and thought, well, what I'll do, I'll, I'll knock that wall down there and I'll knock that wall down. And perhaps we'll put a wall up here without you know, having structural engineers and so forth coming in to do that, I think this place wouldn't have stayed up very long. And Paul says that here, if the church is going to be a true church, it needs to get its foundations right. And there's only one foundation. It's the foundation that Paul himself laid. It was Jesus Christ. You see, the foundation is a part of the, the, the most important part of a building because it determines the size and the shape and the strength of the building. And if you're going to go high, you need to go deep. <coughs> Can anybody tell me what the world's tallest building is? A few mutters. Sorry? No. It's the Burj Khalifi. And it was opened in Dubai on January the 4th, 2010. It's a staggering 2,717 feet tall. More than half a mile high. (coughs) It stands double the height of the Empire State Building in New York. Now, I've never been to Dubai, but Julie and I a few years back went to New York and we went up the Empire State Building. I'm incredibly nervous of heights. And we got to the observation tower... And uh, it was all perfectly safe, and we were looking on a beautiful March day all the way down into lower Manhattan. And I was starting to breathe a little bit heavier. And I was standing against the wall at the back, and my heart was racing, and my hands were sweating a little bit. And I just can't imagine, you know, having a building twice that height. just blows my mind. And this particular building breaks all world records. It's the world's tallest man-made structure. It has a building with 160 floors. It has the world's fastest elevators. They go 40 miles an hour. That sounds a bit more like Alton Towers, doesn't it, you know? Or Nemesis or Oblivion. It's got the highest outdoor observation deck, 124th floor. The world's highest mosque located on the 158th floor. The world's highest swimming pool on the 76th floor. 
And you see, most attention on this incredible building is on its height. But more important, what lies beneath the building? You see, without that solid foundation, the world's tallest building would very quickly become the world's longest pile of rubble. So extending 164 feet down into the earth, under the Burj Khalafi, it lies 58,900 cubic yards of concrete, 120,000 tons of it. And it took a year to build just the foundation for that building. You see, get your foundations wrong, and anything that's built on top will turn to rubble. And the only foundation for the church, for any church, is Jesus Christ. As Paul writes in chapter 15, the one who died and was buried and on the third day raised from the dead, according to the scriptures. The builders of the Burj Khalifa took 12 months to lay the foundations in Dubai. And the Apostle Paul took 18 months to lay spiritual foundations in Corinth. Others came along. Paul left. He went to Ephesus. Others came and they built on that foundation that Paul had laid. And then Paul says, it's important not only to get your foundations right, but it's so important to recognize what you are building with upon those foundations of Jesus Christ. And Paul provides two groups of materials. Wood, hay and straw, or, um, and, and gold, silver and jewels, or precious stones in some Bibles. And the difference is that gold, silver and jewels are permanent, are beautiful, are valuable, are hard to obtain. Wood, hay and straw, well that's temporary, ordinary, cheap, easy to obtain. And you see, those materials... And Paul is, is just providing such a wonderful metaphor for us here. Those materials represent a number of things. They represent the way that we have lived our lives as Christians. Have we lived for ourselves? On our life's journey, has God been in the driving seat of our lives or has he been in the passenger seat or maybe in the back seat? Have we been obedient to the things that God has revealed to us through his scriptures. Have we lived to honor his name? Have we sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? How have we used our finances? Have we been people who have been big hearted and generous or have been miserly and tight fisted? Have we seen ourselves as owners of everything that we have or have we seen ourselves as stewards of it? Have we looked out for the widow and the orphan? Do we serve others with a servant heart? You see, those materials that we are building on this foundation of Christ represent our conduct, represent our service, our integrity, and also the motivations of our heart. One author put it this way, A campaign of neighborhood visitation done because of compulsion is wood. But visiting the same people in love to win them to the Lord is gold. Singing a solo in church and being concerned about how people like our voice is hay. But singing to glorify God is silver. 
Giving generously out of duty or pressure from men is straw. But giving generously with joy to extend the gospel and to serve others in the Lord's name is precious stone. And there's one more difference as well to that list that I put up. And it is this. (coughs) The wood, hay and straw are combustible. In fire they will burn, they will be consumed, whilst gold, silver and jewels will survive the, the fire. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to Christians of all ages and us today, that there is a judgment day coming. A day when that fire will reveal the quality of each person's work. When it will become evident that we have built with precious materials or with very ordinary materials. You see, when we had our major building works done about 12 years ago, there came a day when the building work was inspected and then signed off by a building inspector. And Paul says that there's coming a day when Jesus returns. A day when we will all stand before him. And the first question will be on that day. What did we do with Jesus in our lives? Did we believe in him? Did we trust him? Did we entrust our lives to him? And we will also be asked, what kind of materials we used as we built upon the foundation of Christ. The quality of our lives will be evaluated. I don't believe for a moment that Paul was talking of real, literal, physical fire. He is using a metaphor here. It's a metaphor for testing. He writes in verse 13, On the judgment day, Fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through the wall of flames. I don't know if you... I've ever seen a house which has been ravaged by fire. You look through the space that was once a window and everything inside is charcoal. Everything which is combustible has just been burned up, leaving the the foundations and the infrastructure of the building. You see, if the building is, 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 if we are building with wood, hay and straw, then all of our life's work and effort will not survive. But for those who have built with gold, silver and jewels, they will receive great reward when Christ returns. Paul in a later letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 says, For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will all receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. As I was thinking about these words um, this week, I asked myself if Paul was around today, if he was speaking to us in the 21st century, how would he tell us this? How would he get this message over to us? And I thought that he might say something like this. He would refer to someone who is perhaps coming to the end of writing a book or doing a, 
a research degree. And they have put all this work and this effort of many years, many long hours, into this book or into this research degree. And then just as they were about to press the send button, they pressed delete by mistake. And as we know, and for those of us who are computer literate, it doesn't just delete because a dialog box will come up on your screen and it asks for confirmation, do you really want to delete this? But as that comes up on our screen, someone walks into the room and we're distracted and we press OK instead of cancel. And all that effort and time has amounted to nothing at all. Zilch, zero. I'll tell you what, my heart is racing at the thought of it. You know, because I've been there and had one or two very, very close escapes. But Paul says that that will be a reality for some Christians on that day. Again, what we mustn't forget here when we are looking at these words. Paul is writing to a church. He is writing to Christians when he says that some will suffer great loss. He says, yes, we will be saved. And the reason for that is because we have built on the foundation that is Jesus. The foundation has not been affected. We will be saved. But he says the builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. You know, I find it a very, very somber thought. And personally, on a Sunday, you know, if I'm really truthful about this, I'd much prefer that these passages weren't in Scripture, that we could, you know, I could be here to encourage, to, to, to comfort, to console, to inspire. But you say, and I guess that some might even say that, Steve, well, you're a bit heavy in parts there this morning, Steve. That was, was, was a bit serious in parts. To be truthful, I would prefer you to say that and for me to actually tell you the things that I am telling you this morning. Because you see, there's a day coming when it's not only you, but I too will stand before the Lord on that day. And I will have to give account for my life and for my ministry and for the way that I have taught Sunday by Sunday within the context of this church. And I hope you understand that. James writes in chapter 3 verse 1, Brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church. For we who teach will be judged more strictly. And finally, as we come to the end of my talk this morning, verse 16. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So, in this chapter, Paul has certainly mixed his metaphors, hasn't he? He's gone speaking about spiritual infants, to the crops and fields, to buildings and foundations, and now he's speaking about God's temple. In chapter 6, and we'll come to this in three weeks' time, 
Paul speaks again of individual Christians being a temple of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what he's doing on this occasion. He's not speaking of individual Christians being a temple of the Holy Spirit here. He is speaking of the church corporately as being a temple of God's Spirit. You see, in Old Testament times, God lived in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting, and then afterwards in the temple that Solomon built. But today, God's temple, his dwelling place, is his church. And by that I don't mean the church building. You know, and those people who refer to the church building as God's house are quite mistaken. God lives in his church, in his people, and not in a building. This is a nice building, isn't it? It's it's, it's a great building. It it does us okay. But, you know, at its best, it's only a sheep shed for sheep. Okay? It's a nice sheep shed, isn't it? You know, let's, let's be honest. But God dwells in his people, his church. And if the world is going to know God and experience his love and power, then it is through his church, through Christians, that he will be found. And yet, Paul says, that these Corinthians, by their quarreling over church leaders, promoting some and devaluing others, were actually destroying God's temple, the place that he resides. And then in verse uh, 21, so he says, Don't boast about following particular human leader, for everything belongs to you, whether Paul or Paulus or Peter, blah, 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 and you belong to Christ. You see, Paul was God's gift to the church. But you know what? So was Apollos. And so was Priscilla and Aquila. And so was Cephas. They were all God's gifts. And we are also God's gifts to one another. Time has gone. Many challenges here in this chapter. Firstly, the challenge that we need to grow up in our faith. And not remain babes and infants. We also need to recognize that we are servants in the Master's hands. And that's all we are. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is the one who brings the increase. We need to remember too that uh, Christ is the only foundation. There can be no other foundation. And that we need to build well with good materials, not inferior ones. For one day, it is possible that we could suffer loss because of that. And finally, that we together are God's temple, the place where he resides on planet earth, which I would say is both an awesome responsibility and an awesome privilege. Guys, would you like to come back? We're going to sing together, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less Than Jesus' Blood and Righteousness. And Would you stand, please?